This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. This week I want to look at um, uh, what Sangharachita has to say about the nature of reality. Um, it's actually what the Buddha had to say about the nature of reality uh, and Sangharachita um, translating that for us. Uh, and in, in this book, the chapter that I'm going to be looking at is um, called The Texture of Reality. The Texture of Reality. Probably I'm not going to be able to go through everything in the chapter and it might be that we carry on um, next week exploring this. Uh, but the first thing that Sangrachita says is that um, reality is not a Buddhist word. There's no equivalent. Sorry about that. Come in. There's no equivalent um, Buddhist word for reality. Reality is um, a rather abstract notion. Uh, and Buddhism doesn't tend to go in for abstract notions. Buddhism is very, very concerned with our experience, our real lived experience, what, 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 um, what we do about that experience. Uh, it's not particularly a philosophy, Buddhism. It's a, it's a method. It's a, a set of teachings and techniques to help transform our experience, our lives, our minds particularly. Uh, whereas reality is quite an abstract notion that philosophers might use. Nevertheless, um, nevertheless, um, there isn't um, perhaps another word in, in English that quite captures what Buddhism is talking about. Because Buddhism isn't just concerned about us becoming me, you, becoming uh, more happy, although that's part of part of it. Buddhism is concerned with uh, us recognizing, realizing the way things are, the truth of what's going on. Uh, in fact, the central premise is that because us unenlightened ones uh, are deluded to the real nature of what's going on, we um, we live these cramped, limited, unsatisfactory lives. Uh, if we could see the truth of what's going on, there'd be a, there'd be an immense liberation uh, uh, and an outpouring of energy, of freedom, of of bliss, of joy, of love, of compassion, and and we'd we'd live to our full potential. Uh, and 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 the Buddha figure represents that potential. Um, uh, personified but nevertheless I'm going to use this word reality the other thing that um, Sangharachita talks about is he's called this chapter the texture of reality and he says he quite likes the word texture because it implies that there's a real tangible kind of um, uh, uh, experience that you can have of of reality uh, texture is such a concrete tangible um, um, word, or the connotations of it are, yeah. So, so in Buddhism, uh, 
if we're going to use this word reality, there are two realities, not one, but two realities. Later on, uh, I'll, I'll talk about um, how those two realities are, or I'll try and talk about how they're related. And arguably, some, some schools of Buddhism would say that actually they're not really distinct. Um, but in order to get to that point, you have to start from the premise that there, there are two realities. Uh, and the two realities, um, in, in Sanskrit, the words are Sanskrita and Asanskrita. And Sanskrita is sometimes translated as um, uh, compounded or uh, conditioned or made, made up. It's um, uh, sometimes, well, one teacher I was reading recently talks about, translates it as fabricated. Uh, fabricated gives you this connotation of um, something put together and and therefore made up, but it also gives you this connotation that it's illusory. Uh, it's a fabrication. It's a fabrication, uh, and and that's quite a good translation, um, I think, of this word sankrita, sanskrita. Um, it it's often translated as conditioned reality, this conditioned realm. Um, because as we've been exploring this class, in this conditioned realm, uh, everything is, everything that you can ever experience through your senses is arising, not in its own right, it doesn't exist separately, it's part of a network of conditions. Everything is a conditioned phenomena and can be broken down into those conditions. You know, you take a book like this, this book, we call it a book, but actually it's, it's a whole network of conditions that have come together, including physical conditions like the paper is, was once trees or, or wood. Then there's, um, uh, you know, all the binding and all the sort of publishing um, work that goes into making a book. There's the fact that Sangharakshita wrote the material that is in this book. It was edited by somebody else. Uh, Sangharakshita is um, a Buddhist teacher because of a whole network of conditions to do with his life, to do with, well, part of that was... Um, uh, that he had other Buddhist teachers, he learned from other Buddhist teachers. So you've got a network of conditions going back in history. Um, he was um, drafted in the Second World War and sent to India as a sig signalman and was able to find uh, Buddhist teachers in India. Had the Second World War not happened, well, I don't know whether Sangharachita would have been Sangharachita. Uh, I don't know what he... I don't know what he would have been and whether we would be here today. There's a whole historical and um, geographical network of conditions behind any phenomena, such as a book like this. Uh, and of course, I could go on and on. In the end, you could say that the whole universe needs to exist for this book to exist. 
that means the whole cosmos, the Big Bang, and everything that's happened, as it were, since, is implicated in this phenomena that we so sort of uh, glibly call a book. Yeah? Uh, and that's true of everything in our phenomenal world. Everything is uh, the result of a network of conditions coming together. That's us, every material thing around us, everything that you can possibly experience through the senses is part of this network of conditions. That's a very different way of looking at, at the world. Uh, rather than thinking in terms of things, you think in terms of a network of conditions that we're part of. That's very different. So that's the conditioned realm or conditioned reality. But then Buddhism says that that's not all that there is. Uh, that's not all that there is. There's also a realm that um, uh, the Buddha talked about uh, called the Asankrata, which is the unconditioned. So the unfabricated, the uncompounded, the unmade. There's there's a reality beyond this phenomenal world that is um, uh, not dependent on conditions at all. It's, it's outside, if you like, that conditioned structure. Uh, it's outside of this realm of matter and form. It's also outside the realm of well, it's outside the realm of the senses, any of the five senses, anything that you can um, experience with the five senses, that's not the unconditioned. It's also outside what we normally call consciousness. So it's not within our normal, at least our normal experience of consciousness. That's not it either. So anything that the normal conscious mind and our five senses experience, that's not the unconditioned. It's easier to say what it isn't. Yeah? Uh, it's, it's not um, even in space and time. Uh, normally when we think of a realm or reality, somewhere in our mind we're thinking of a place. Uh, uh, but space and time are part of conditioned reality. Uh, in fact, Buddhism goes so far as to say that they're, they're mind-made. Their, their constructs from consciousness. Uh, so the unconditioned isn't part of this framework of space and time, of form, of self or other. And therefore, it's outside of all conceptual designation. Yeah? Uh, and yet, the Buddha said that there is such a place. Such a place? That's maybe giving the wrong... Um, you see... Any language that one uses, you're, I'm using metaphors, and those metaphors are, they belong to the world of space and time and things. So when we start talking about the unconditioned, even to say the unconditioned is to imply that it's a thing, or a place, or a state, and it's none of those. So that's weird, really, really weird, yeah? It's it's a very, very... Um, um, uh, paradoxical, profound thing that is being pointed to, and yet it's said that that is what we have um, as our true potential. That's what li will liberate us. 
So you've got this conditioned and this unconditioned um, realm. Uh, and the Buddha, in one of the suttas, Bhante talks about this, Sangharachita talks about this, it's called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. And in that sutta, um, the Buddha talks about before he was a Buddha, before he was enlightened, uh, what made him go on this quest for enlightenment, for for uh, realization, for liberation. And in this sutta, he doesn't talk about the four sights. He doesn't talk about going out of the palace and seeing an old man or um, a sick man or a corpse or a, or a holy man. What he says is that he's just reflecting on his own experience and he's reflecting that his own experience is um, finite and impermanent. All around him, he sees that everything is subject to decay, death. Um, it's impermanent. Uh, and he says to himself, why, why, if I am subject to death, am I going in quest of things that are also perishable? Um, it's an interesting way of looking at the sort of life that I was talking about in, in the tea break. Why, if we know that we're mortal, that we're finite, are we going, are we looking for satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, in other things that are also mortal and finite? He says, wouldn't it be, what would it be like if I went in quest of the immortal, um, the infinite, if you like, uh, the completely fulfilling. Um, what would it be like if I went for um, uh, for that as as my refuge, as my quest? Uh, that's said to be the noble quest. And Bante talks about that um, uh, sort of reflection being the essence of the Dharma life, of any spiritual life. He says that it boils down to the conditioned in search of the unconditioned. That's what you could say the Buddhist life is. It's the conditioned, that's me and you, in search of the unconditioned. <coughs> in a theistic tradition, I guess what you'd be in quest for is, is God, or, or, uh, or union with God, or meeting God, or whatever. You'd, you'd be in, in quest for something higher, like a creator God. The thing is that from a Buddhist perspective, God's not the answer, because God is still, um, particularly if you think of a creator God, a personal creator God, if that's your notion of God, and I know that the notion of God is so broad and elastic that, that you know, people can, I've met um, people whose notions of God, to me, seem thoroughly Buddhist. But um, if I take a classic notion of a creator, personal creator God, then such a figure is also in the realm of subject and object and space and time. He, he's in the realm, she is in the realm of, from a Buddhist perspective, of the conditioned. All you've done is you've imagined the biggest, brightest, shiniest, best object that you can um, but you're still in this 
dualistic realm of self and other, of subject and object. And, and that isn't the ultimate aim of Buddhism. Yeah. That's not enlightenment. So, in a way, Buddhism starts from this position that there are these two realities and you can move from the conditioned to the unconditioned. Um, Let me just pause there and see if there's any questions, particularly if anything I've said isn't clear. Feel clear? How do you know the Yeah, how do you know? Um, in a certain sense, you can't know. You can't know for sure until you've glimpsed or tasted it, touched it. Until you've really touched and tasted what it is, you probably can't know for sure. So then it becomes... Buddhism isn't, isn't, um, doesn't promote blind belief um, or, or sort of blind faith. It doesn't say you must believe till somebody tells you so, even if that somebody happens to be the Buddha. So what Buddhism is, is, um, is more saying is look at your own experience as you try and practice the Dharma and put more of it into effect. Does your life feel more fulfilled, expansive, rich, um, free, creative, joyous, connected with others? Do you feel that that's happening? Now, if you feel that that's happening, uh, you're already orientating your life towards this goal of the unconditioned. You might not be able to see that goal or know even that it's there. But you're, from, a, from, from the Buddha's perspective, you're orientating your life already in that way. And in a certain sense, you could remain agnostic about whether the unconditioned is a, is a reality or not. You could just be quite pragmatic and say, I'll just carry on taking the next step, as I was saying, and see if the next step leads me to greater fulfillment, greater liberation, greater freedom, greater creativity, greater connection, greater uh, uh, aliveness. If it does, then take that step and you know, keep taking the next one. But that's one way of, one, one way of um, answering the question, which is slightly evasive, isn't it? It's sort of saying you can't know, but, but keep going. And uh, one day you might. That's one way of answering it, or not answering it. Um, another thing that occurs to me, though, is that um, we do have uh, intuitions that there is something more. Uh, all human beings have that, actually. Now, I know that it isn't proved, because an intuition could be wrong, but there are moments in your life Sometimes they, they feel like they've just um, descended upon you for no reason. But probably we've got moments in our life of heightened experience, of heightened awareness, where our mind, we enter into a state of mind which feels bigger, more expansive and spacious than it normally does. 
does that does that ring true for you? Sometimes those moments are connected with beauty. You know, they can happen in nature or or um, through art. Uh, sometimes they happen through uh, being in love, and suddenly everything looks brighter. Sometimes uh, people experience them through drugs and mind-altering substances. Sometimes they seem to happen to you for no reason at all. Um, a friend of mine had um, uh, a sort of glimpse, I would say, of the unconditioned lying in the bath after a very, very stressful period in his life. And, and there was a lot of strain in his life. Um, uh, he was in the army and he was potentially going to be drafted into the Iraq war, the first Iraq, the first Gulf War, I think. And um, um, there was a lot of strain and stress. And, and then one evening he's lying in the bath and suddenly, for no apparent reason, he'd never meditated before, don't think he was knew anything about Buddhism, he found himself in a state of mind where he was sort of outside his normal frame of reference and everything seemed connected and beautiful and all right. And that wasn't a delusional state. He knew that he was somehow seeing the truth more clearly than his normal everyday state. So that's quite a dramatic glimpse. Not everybody has such a dramatic glimpse. But those um, moments, sometimes they're just very, very fleeting, but those moments uh, where you can have an intuition or a glimpse that there's something more to consciousness, to experience, than your everyday mind normally sees, those are pointing to something real. And I think lots and lots of people have them, but they don't know what to do with them. So they maybe they dismiss them, maybe they don't talk about them, maybe they secretly cherish them as, as um, um, high points in, in their life, but they don't then uh, make anything of them. Does that does that help? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was also just thinking uh, is a few weeks ago we heard about the one man which speaks. Hmm. So it's like that's is that part of it? Is hmm. that like hmm. the the idea that there's always suffering hmm. that's it feels like that's part of hmm. this other sort of reality of yeah. knowing truth yeah. outside of yeah, no, you're spot on there. And I'm, I'm going to go on to talk about that. So, yeah, no, that's right. So you don't have to take it on blind faith, but look at your own experience, particularly look at whether you've had intuitions, glimpses, glimmers of something more. Uh, and also look at your experience since you've been practising meditation and, 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 and Buddhism. Has that experience changed you for the better? Uh, if so... Perhaps there's more to discover. You know, keep taking the next step and exploring. <coughs> so let me move on. So um, the unconditioned is pretty difficult to talk about for all the reasons that I've already said. It's, it's difficult to uh, picture, to describe, because anything that you can say about it falsifies it. But the conditioned is easier to talk about. And the Buddha tended to talk more about the conditioned. 
he tended to talk about this uh, uh, level of reality that we ordinarily experience. And um, he said that um, the conditioned, any conditioned experience, uh, bears the hallmarks of three characteristics. Uh, these three kind of characteristics are like, um, yeah, hallmarks. They're like stamps that underlie any experience of the condition. You can tell that it's conditioned rather than unconditioned if one of these three, or maybe more than one of these three, is found. Um, so, does anybody know what these three characteristics are? You had one of them just now. That there's unsatisfactoriness in the condition. So that's maybe the one I'll explore the most today. Uh, perhaps the only one that I'll explore. But for completeness and, and sort of thinking ahead, does anybody know what the other two are? Uh, yes, who said that? Oliver. Impermanence. Um, so that's the other characteristic, that there is only change. Yeah, that, that everything in this conditioned realm is changing all the time, that there's nothing static that can be found uh, in it. Yeah, impermanence. Yeah, and the third? It's perhaps a bit more tricky, the third one. Yeah. Can you say can you say any more than that about it? Uh, there's nothing as a sort of an underlying essence to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's no substance or essence to anything in the conditioned realm. It's um, sometimes called translated as insubstantiality. Uh, there's no real abiding substance behind anything. So if I take the book again, uh, you know, it looks like a, a substantial, tangible thing. But, you know, you can, you could rip it up. Uh, you could rip out the pages. And then, well, is it still the book? If I rip out, how many pages do I need to rip out before it's not a book? for example, uh, or if I were to set fire to it, uh, there wouldn't be anything recognisable left that we would call book. Uh, there's no essential substance here. It's just a network of conditions that have brought this phenomena into being, and it's always changing, it's always impermanent. Now, it looks like it might be quite static, but that's because um, it's changing quite slowly <laughs> compared to um, most, you know, things that we're, we're familiar with. But, you know, it's already dog-eared, it's bent, it's... Every time I touch it, it's changing. Even if I don't touch it, it'll be changing. The atoms that make up the... the the, subs the sort of texture of the pages 
uh, they're moving all the time. There's nothing static about any of them. Anyway, uh, yes, insubstantiality. Perhaps we'll explore that more uh, next week. That That's the third lakshana, as it's called, or the uh, characteristic, the three characteristics or the three marks of conditioned existence are unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and insubstantiality. But I just want to come to the first one. Um, so in, in do, do you know the Sanskrit word for this? In unsatisfactoriness? Dukkha. So sometimes dukkha is translated as suffering. Um, unsatisfactoriness probably is closer to the to what it what it means. It's trying to say that uh, everything in conditioned existence is unsatisfactory. So is that your experience? Do you really feel that? Or is the Buddha just being a bit of a um, pessimist, uh, sort of, is Buddhism just got a bit of a downer on life and uh, saying that uh, there's no, there's no joy to be had. Yes? I think the answer has to be subtle in the sense that it's only through the moments of radiance and learning why that we can get an intimation that there might be something beyond it. So that Hmm. There are glancing moments, yeah. as you were saying, I think, and yeah. very extraordinary. Yeah. Not to be described, but just looking. Yeah. Very clear. Yeah. Yeah. That, that obviously they don't last, but that doesn't mean that they are. That they're not real. And, and so it's like, I think that's right, that from the perspective of the enlightened mind, where what we consider those glancing moments of radiance, beautifully put, if that is um, the experience of the enlightened mind all the time, from that perspective, that mind's perspective, the Buddha's perspective, what we are normally experiencing is, in comparison, pretty unsatisfactory. Yeah, Even our... Uh, moments of bliss and happiness compared to that experience are pretty unsatisfactory. So that's one way of looking at this. I think it's a good way of looking at this. Yeah, so it's a relative kind of truth, isn't it? Any other thoughts, though, on, on this notion of unsatisfactory? Is that... Why might the Buddha have said that? I mean, is that true? Yes. Well, we've got it and then keep it. Yeah. And what happens? It doesn't last forever. Yeah, it doesn't last forever. So one of the um, one of the sort of uh, hallmarks, as we've just said, of reality is impermanence, that nothing is fixed and therefore nothing can last. And what we want is the moment we got it, as you say, if it's if it's fulfilling and pleasurable and satisfying at all, we want to hold on to it. And that can be possessions, uh, more often it's people. Uh, you know, with a possession, at least it looks like it's not changing. <laughs> with with another human being, we're on to, we're on to hiding for nothing, aren't we? If we want to fix somebody and hold on to them. 
in a way that uh, is um, well, it's just not real realistic. Uh, as soon as we've got something that is pleasurable, we want to kind of hold on to it. Somewhere in our minds, even if it's not that conscious, there must be a subtle kind of anxiety that it could go, it could disappear. Um, uh, Bhante gives quite a number of examples. He quotes um, uh, uh, a Buddhist translator and scholar called Edward Conzer, who was saying that... Um, uh, he uses the example, Konza uses the example of people who are very, really wealthy, really, really wealthy, and how they can um, be subtly anxious about losing their wealth. Rather than just relaxed in it, the more you have, the more you've got to lose. And very wealthy people can be really tight, uptight and anxious about losing it. Um, somewhere they must know, what do you sort of mean? But it's not stable, enduring state yeah Consul also goes on to um, talk about other other um, forms of suffering that the Buddha talked about so the Buddha talks about birth being unsatisfactory and painful birth is un, is painful for the mother uh, uh, but also um, it's said to be painful for the child being born um, uh, I don't know what it was like when I was born, <laughs> but presumably I was quite comfortable and cosy <laughs> in the womb. And then uh, I, I, I'm pretty certain that I still hanker after the duvet. Do you know what I mean? I pull the duvet over my head and that must be this yearning for this kind of warm womb-like kind of state. Uh, and then we were thrust forth into this, you know, we didn't ask to be born, and then suddenly you're in this glaring lights and cold and noisy kind of world. Probably quite a traumatic experience that we started off this life with. Probably. Uh, might have been different. Anyway, birth is painful. The Buddha talked about birth being painful. He talked about old age as being painful. You know, you start to lose the faculties. You become, you become more and more um, dependent on others your body starts to decay and break down and it's physically and psychologically painful, old age. Uh, uh, anyway, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then um, there's, uh, along the way, there's probably sickness, isn't there? So that doesn't help. Uh, he was just kind of drawing these different kind of... And then there's death. You know, death... Even if you're ready to die, like a lot of people die unwillingly, as it were, but some people, the, you know, are fortunate enough to feel they're ready to go, they're, they're happy enough to let go. That's great. But probably there's still some physical discomfort. <laughs> uh, I mean, probably, yeah? And certainly death is probably painful for the, the, the ones left behind, the, the loved ones left behind. If you're bereaved, that's painful. So death. Yeah. Uh, and then the Buddha went on and talked about things like um, uh, even if you've got what you want, it's just what you said, you, you, can be fear, you can be frightened of losing it. And sometimes you get what you don't want, sometimes you don't get what you do want, etc., etc. There's 
life is shot through, human life is shot through with unsatisfactoriness. That's not to say that pain is all there is. There's also joy and pleasure and beauty and uh, um, bliss and all sorts of things, love. Uh, but they are transient. Conza goes on to talk about how even when we're really happy um, and we've got everything we want, if you, if you pause long enough and think about it, often our pleasure is sort of bought at the expense of somebody else's pain. Um, somebody else might have had to suffer for the things that I, make me happy labour for them, etc, etc. Um, sounds a bit sobering, isn't it? Uh, do you want more reasons to be unhappy? Let's have a look. <laughs> yeah, another one he says is that something can be pleasant but it, it's inextricably tied to something that is unpleasant. Um, so the example he gives is, um, this is the Buddha talking, but the Kansa gives the example of the, of the body. So the body can be um, uh, immensely pleasurable, um, and, and you've got all these senses and sense experiences that can be joyous and pleasurable. But inextricably linked with that is the potential for sickness, old age, and death, and all that, you know, goes along with that. And a lot of the time, um, the body doesn't feel very pleasurable, does it? Um, think about early in the morning, uh, unless you can bounce out of bed, it's just not very pleasant <laughs> to have a body. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's inextricably tied, the, the pleasant and the unpleasant in that, that example. Now, all of that would be um, not very helpful. All of this dwelling on dukkha wouldn't be very helpful unless there was uh, a way out of that. Yeah? Unless there was a way out of that. And the Buddha talked... What, um, one of the things he said was that all of his teaching boiled down to the teaching of dukkha and the ending of dukkha. That's what he was teaching. He was saying life is unsatisfactory. Look at it and then orientate yourself towards something that is going to really fulfill, that is going to meet the deepest yearnings of the human heart, that nothing in conditioned existence is going to be able to do. Nothing finite, impermanent is going to be able to do. So he, he was saying that uh, there is the possibility of the ending of Dukkha. And that's the second noble truth, that, that it can, um, and the third noble truth, that, that it can um, be transcended. Yeah. So let me just pause and see if there are any more questions before I go on to what it might be like to transcend Dukkha. Are you more convinced? 
unsatisfactoriness being a hallmark characteristic of conditioned existence. You all look pretty glum, so that's <laughs> so. Um, one of the one of the um, teachings around this is that um, when you really see the truth of unsatisfactoriness of dukkha, or indeed of the other two characteristics, when you really see, not just intellectually but with the whole of your being and with, with, uh, with the eye of wisdom, when you really see conditioned existence and the truth of conditioned existence and what it is, that is you seeing the unconditioned. So, so in, this, in this particular way of looking at this, the conditioned and the unconditioned aren't ultimately separate. Uh, if you penetrate deep enough into the truth of what the conditioned world is like, you arrive at an experience of the unconditioned. That's why it's so emphasised that you, you really reflect on your experience of the conditioned. That if we could really see unsatisfactoriness, if we could really see it, we would, and we, we see it with wisdom, we would have a, a turning about in our in our in our experience in our consciousness, where there would be a letting go, there would be a, a, a letting go of trying to make life work according to the ego's desires. There would be a surrendering of desire, of wanting to fix life, uh, of wanting to get it just right for me, if we could really see that the whole show is shot through with, um, it, it, it's, it's set up in a way that will never deliver complete satisfaction, if we could really let go of the grasping that we tend to live our lives by, there would be a release. And in that release, there's a glimpse of the unconditioned. And then what happens is that the, the yearning that, um, for satisfaction is finally fulfilled, but not through getting what we kind of thought we wanted, but through transcending the whole framework of me wanting anything. Yeah? So that's, that's, that's quite a, a subtle teaching here, that if you go far enough in the conditioned, you arrive at the unconditioned. Um, the, the, the sort of model, the, the spatial kind of metaphor, is that the conditioned is within the unconditioned. So if you go deep enough into the conditioned, you arrive at the unconditioned. And um, so each of these three characteristics, these three lakshanas, is associated with an experience of the unconditioned. If you go deep enough into unsatisfactoriness, you have an experience uh, of a heightened consciousness called a samadhi. And this particular samadhi is called the apranahita samadhi. The apranahita samadhi is pointing to a state of mind 
where there is no wanting. There is complete contentment. There's this, you've let go of any grasping. There's no, nothing that you need or want. You just feel completely fulfilled. Completely fulfilled. So there's no pull or push. There's just complete serenity, contentment, fulfillment, um, and and peace in a in a certain sense. There's a sort of resting. There's a there's a, as it were a sigh of profound relief at just being able to rest without the hankering, without the constant um, uh, yearning that drives life on. Uh, it's sometimes called the unhankered samadhi. Um, it's it's uh, and it's not just contentment that we might experience after a good meal, uh, mm. although maybe that's an intimation of it. It's a profound existential um, contentment where you you see that there was never anything that you needed. You've got it all. That life was always perfect um, through all its ups and downs at another level it was perfect it's just that we didn't have the eyes to see that that's an experience it's a mystical experience it doesn't make rational sense it doesn't make rational sense because from from the unenlightened perspective of course life isn't perfect uh, how can we even say that when there's so much pain and suffering but from this transcendent perspective without denying the suffering, at the same time, it's fine. It's fine. And that's a mystical experience, not a rational one. It's, it's, it's seen through with wisdom. It's apranahita. So that's um, um, said to be uh, a doorway to liberation. It's said to be a gateway to liberation. You... you um, reflect on dukkha, on unsatisfactoriness, and you arrive at complete fulfilment through letting go, letting go of all wanting, of all yearning. So it's very, very paradoxical, because the instinct is to grasp after what we want, rather than to let go. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of the sense of letting go of the kind of hankering and wanting, I just wonder how um, how where ambition kind of fits into that in terms of mm. there's certain kinds of hankering mm. to kind of accomplish things and mm. kind of hit certain milestones mm. or kind of do something significant with your life. But mm. kind of, I wonder how that kind of fits in mm. that mm. stuff. Mm. Again, it seems slightly paradoxical. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, I could just let go and yeah. just not yeah. try to yeah. achieve anything yeah. because I've got what I need. Yeah. It's a really good question because um, you're completely right that for us, unenlightened people, there will be a hankering, and some hankering isn't bad because it might lead to progress. If we prematurely in the spiritual life, just let go and say there's nothing to do, uh, nowhere to go, nothing to be. Uh, if we just d 
do that, we'll probably will never get out of bed in the morning uh, and never do anything and not make progress. Uh, so that isn't what's been got at. The, the, there's, there's something about ambition or that drive to succeed which can be quite healthy. It depends where the ambition's oriented. If the ambition is oriented towards just having more and being more, more yourself, then it's, it's just one more um, uh, fuel, one more bit of fuel on this um, conditioned wheel. It's just driving this conditioned realm. Um, but the ambition could be directed towards wanting something really fulfilling. Uh, and in a certain sense, it's the same sort of sort of drive, but it's directed towards something positive, something that might actually fulfil. So there is a place for ambition, um, particularly in the early stages of the Dharma life. And by early stages, I mean like decades. Uh, there's probably a place for striving, for wanting to become more fulfilled. Um, you know, just to meditate, you've got to have some sort of sense that it'll it'll work and that it's worth doing. So there is a place for that. It's just look for where are you, where is your ambition oriented? Where's it going? And uh, is it working where it's heading? Yeah. So you're right. You don't want to let go prematurely. Yeah. Uh, just one more. Maybe I'll come to you as well. Go on. Mystical experience. I mean, who can I have this mystical experience? But it's still a subjective experience. Mm. So what about other people? Mm. I mean, how can you then help other people mm. if you're so inclined? Yeah. Because you're pure altruistic. Yeah. I mean, you still have a problem. Yeah. So, so, um, there's two, there's two things there that I, I want to try and touch on, but I haven't got very much time. The first is that I talked about mystical experience, but actually an experience of the, condition, of the unconditioned isn't really an experience at all. It's not even like a mystical experience. Um, because, as you say, any experience implies a subjective thing. And an experience of the unconditioned, you've left behind the notion of a me, of a subject, as distinct from the object. You've left anything behind. So, in a sense, you can't talk about the unconditioned as being something that I experience, like any other experience. Um, it's, it's, again, we're at the edges of language here. So, although I was talking about mystical experiences as intimations of something more, the unconditioned, you wouldn't be able to really categorise as an experience that I have. Then, then the other thing that you, you quite rightly raise is what about other people? What about other people? And this goes to the heart of the Buddha's experience after his enlightenment. Because what he experienced was that he transcended dukkha, at least all emotional, mental dukkha. He still had a body, and the body was still subject to decay and pain. But any psychological, emotional, mental dukkha to do with the mind, he transcended. But then, that's not enough, because you look around, 
and other people haven't transcended that. So then what's said to arise in the enlightened mind is compassion. Is What's said to arise is this sort of boundless compassion for all unenlightened beings. For everybody that's trapped in this conditioned realm, there's just this yearning to free them all. And, and so what the Buddha did was to live that live out of that compassion by teaching the Dharma, helping to free as many people as he could, and starting, well, a whole um, lineage of teachings that, you know, is still alive today. The work is never done, because there's always more suffering. There's always more suffering beings. So it's paradoxical to think that you can sort of ever rest or retire as an enlightened being. You might be free of suffering, and then then there's just um, a sense of compassion that arises. And that's said to arise quite naturally, because one of the characteristics of the enlightened consciousness is that you've transcended all sense of um, uh, boundaries and separateness. Ultimately, you see that you are not separate from other beings or from the rest of the universe, the rest of phenomena. Uh, and so when you recognize that you're not separate, you can't help but feel uh, love, empathy, um, and compassion. Maybe that's a good note to end on. So, so the Buddhist quest to be fulfilled isn't just about individual personal enlightenment, as if there was some sort of goodie for me to be had. Uh, it's, it's a bigger thing than that. Next week, we'll, I think David Mitra will carry on looking at these three marks of conditioned existence. He'll look at impermanence, he'll look at insubstantiality, and carry on seeing how they're doorways to this realm of the unconditioned. Good. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.